Welcome to the DevLaunch Podcast, where we bring you inspiring stories of the tech industry's rising stars. In a land that existed before AI, blockchain reigned supreme as the tech buzzword on everyone's lips. Our guest today, Jeff Neesmith, shares his perspective on how blockchain technology and the Web3 space will grow increasingly relevant as AI technology causes us to question reality as we know it. Let's take a listen. Well, Jeff, thank you again so much for being on the show. Mm -hmm. um, you, my friend, have a very different profile than a lot of the other dev agency owners that we've had the chance to interview on this podcast. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, they'll, the, our, our guests, they rise up the ranks through software development sure. um, in the corporate world, and then they eventually go and launch out on their own and they do their own agency and their own startup, but you have spent a majority of your career in the sales and marketing world. So would you mind, give us a little bit of a background, like walk us through what got you to the point where you are today with True Technologies? Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, sort of thinking through my past, you know, it was scary to say, but I've almost had have 30 years in the software world. Um, even though I don't, I didn't code, um, itself, uh, I have been selling software for almost 30 years since 1995. And so, um, I do have a degree in geographical information systems. Um, so that got me into really selling software, uh, a right out of, uh, college in my second degree. Um, I was hired by a company called Northwood Geoscience to sell their JS software, um, I could have gone into the coding side of things, but there's already programmers. They need people to sell, but understand the software. So that's where I sort of earned my chops in shrink wrap, shrink wrap software, uh, which was basically the old school of CD-ROM. You, you shrink wrap with plastic over top of a box and you send it out there and you put the CD-ROM in your computer and you download it to your computer. And that's where I started my sales career in software. And then um, about three years later, I uh, jumped ship to a, another company called Bystream, which was a kind of a web trends for e-commerce websites. It's like 1998. So if you put that on the map of things, you know, the internet was just starting to get going. Uh, e-commerce sites was just starting. Uh, Amazon was just, you know, just getting going, but 1995, 1996. And so you need to be able to um, track the metrics of people abandoning shop carts and Bystream had that. That took me down to San Francisco where I started up the, the sales office down there. And I had about 10 people that were out there selling to what we called interactive agencies, which were the marketing agencies that said they could build these mm -hmm. e-commerce websites. And so there were mm -hmm. companies like uh, US Web, which was one of the top five uh, dot-com busts of uh, the, the dot-com dot-bomb world. Um, but uh, these were big interactive agencies that built these e-commerce websites. And so that's, I was selling to large agencies then of the software package. And then from there, I moved on to a company called Yodely, which was a software that uh, basically aggregated people's bank accounts into one single sign-on view. Um, so if you can imagine that back in 2000, 2002, uh, you've, uh, on average, um, 
the average American had about seven different accounts spread out of credit cards, bank accounts, investment accounts, and consolidating that in a mm -hmm. one, all in one view was very hard to do. And Yoli had a bit of a corner on the market. They had 10 of the 15 top uh, banks in the world that uh, were using this. Uh, so I got to see up front and sell to U.S. Bank and uh, Bank of America um, uh, back in the day, which was nice to do and selling software in there. And then from there, I, I moved uh, up to Vancouver and worked for an enterprise resource planning program uh, uh, called Kayenta. We sold against companies like PeopleSoft. So we, I saw the big, large software implementations, what it took. You know, a, a single sale was about $2 million. So that was pretty interesting to watch. And then uh, uh -huh. from there, I moved on to a company called uh, Yo, uh, to VivoNet. Um, and VivoNet, um, back in 2004, launched the first web-based POS solution for restaurants. And I was the first salesperson for, for VivoNet. And uh, that was kind of interesting to see. Back then, there was no such thing as like, you know, a square um, you know, type of solution where you could run all of your mm -hmm. stores and from a back end. It was all client side. So when you went to a restaurant, the point of sale stayed there. All the information went to the back office. The way that VivoNet, uh, the Halo system, the, that was the point of sale system worked, was that it would all consolidate up in the cloud. That was revolutionary back then, 2004. And I was with uh, Halo and uh, VivoNet for about eight years. Um, and then I moved on to a content marketing company, which was you know, basically messaging um, for thought leaders out there. That was back in 2012. Short little stint there. And then basically Troon... Um, came a knocking. Um, I knew David Mancuso and Paul Dubé from a previous uh, venture that we went into and they had started uh, True Technologies and they asked me to come on board as a partner. Um, so they needed to mm -hmm. rev up the sales, marketing and operations. And, um, you know, uh, basically that was 2014 when I started. I had my 10 year anniversary about uh, three weeks ago. And- um, Congratulations. So I guess I'd say from my background, uh, you know, through selling software, you need to know a little bit how it's built. Um, so mm -hmm. I know enough to be dangerous. I don't write code itself, but I understand enough how products are deployed, uh, software products are deployed. What are mm -hmm. some of the gremlins in there, the skeletons, you know, uh, how coding works, you know, um, uh, microservices versus monolith uh, type of, mm -hmm. you understand where that goes and how that is applied into the product roadmap. Um, those are all things that help. So when people are come to Troon, I can qualify, you know, what kind of app they want to build because the custom development means custom. Everything's a snowflake. Right. So you right. have to kind of know, A, you start with the person's background. What are they looking to try and achieve? Is it a mobile app? Is it a web app? Both. You know, is a Web3 app? You know, what's your background? I usually go with the background to start with. Have they built an app before? They haven't. Different track oh, questions versus someone that's built one. They have likely gone through the pains because it is software is not easy. It is not. There's no such thing as mm. an easy, simple deployment. So um, Troom, you know, uh, had me come on board as a partner. And then from there, it's been successful. I'm sure we'll talk about Troom over the next little while. But uh, that was my background. Yeah. That's super, that's super interesting. Um, so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost seems like that's like part of the qualification process for you is to determine whether or not they have 
experience in building a technology. Can you, I mean, this is totally off script, but uh, would you mind sharing with our audience um, kind of like the, the why behind a qualification question? Like, why is that a good qualification question for something like custom software? One simple answer to that is success or uh, basically failure in the project. If someone doesn't know what they don't know, hmm. not even nine times out of 10, almost 10 out of 10, if they've never built software before, if they've never been a part of a project, they will make assumptions and simplify things and say, oh, it's really simple. This is really, I hear, hear this every day, twice a day, three times a day with prospects that wanna build something. Oh, it's really simple, it's very easy. I go, okay, well, tell me what's easy about it. And they tell me what it is. Uh, a couple other things. Oh, have you done research on it? Is there anybody else doing something similar to this? Oh, no, it's unique. Mm-hmm. As soon as I hear that red flag, so you qualify this out. Because again, at the end of the day, you, you want to work with successful organizations or successful ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really comes down to the person behind it who's calling you up and we're talking about their idea, um, what they want to customize, whether it be an app or a a tool that they want to build onto their existing software solution stack. So identifying what's their experience is really, really important. Um, Do that in a nice way. Say, hey, have you ever built software before I've been a part of a project? And they either say yes or no. A lot of different questions from that. From If they have, they go, oh, what have you built before? So, oh, I was a part of this app. I'm saying, how many different versions did you have? Was it agile? Like I'd ask certain questions. Ooh. that they'd understand a little bit more about that process. And, hmm. you know, to people that have done it before, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is imperfect. It's an imperfect science to, to hmm. deploy software. There's no such thing as a perfect deployment out there. Um, and so you can usually go down that track. And that's the, the beginnings of building rapport. You know, the whole hmm. time when we're talking and I'm talking to someone that is interested in our services is we basically, I just take them down a, a, uh, a garden path of like, Oh yeah, we've done similar projects like that. Is it similar to this? And I start building the app as they're talking and I start figuring out where the timelines are. So I have enough understanding of, you know, where, how fast something could be built or, or whatnot. Um, but there are mm-hmm. us- usually a few red flags along the way when you qualify people in or out. Um, Mm -hmm. and then you go to the ultimate question, which is, okay, have you figured out your budget for this process? Yeah. And if they don't have a Mm -hmm. budget, then that's usually a part you go, "Ah, you know, I can help you, you know, about this. I can give you a ballpark and goes, how much does it cost? Like, you know, they spend two minutes explaining their app, uh, let's say a mobile app and they go, Mm -hmm. how much is it going to be? I go, I I use it, the house analogy, which is that you've just basically described a mansion and how much does a mansion usually cost? Maybe a couple million dollars. So a couple million dollars or $200,000 or $20,000, uh, depending on if you want to have an MVP going out there when I'm using hmm. you know, certain language. But I, I do bring up the Lean Startup all the time with people where they, oh, that's good. if they haven't explored that and they've never built it out, I usually go, hey, read this book, Lean Startup. It's a great way for you to start. Build your business canvas. Figure out how you're going to sell this product. If it is selling product, some of it's for efficiency mm-hmm. of internal processes. They want to automate manual processes that they have internally, so they don't necessarily want to sell it. So that was a bit of a longer, com- you know, explanation. No, I mean, like that's literally the type of route hole that, like, I love going down because the other question that goes through my mind, well, 
I'd love to hear if you agree with the statement or not. Mm-hmm. But I imagine that there's the, a paradoxical relationship with the people who have had experience in the past, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Where in theory, you would think if somebody has experience building co- custom software in the past, they would be the people who'd be like, oh, this should be cheaper or this should be less expensive because I know what I know now. But I, I imagine from your experience, the people who probably pay the right rate are the people who have had the experience and they realize just how like poorly it was managed before. And they're really looking for a very specific type of partner. Like, has that been your experience with Truen? Yes, definitely. Um, I use an analogy and I I might be also dating myself. There's a a great scene in um, uh, Days of Thunder. It's a Tom Cruise movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And there's William I Defoe. have, but I'm, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, the analogy is, is that, uh, you know, in, in this case, uh, Tom Cruise is the maverick in this, and he's this wild uh, stock car racer. And William Defoe is his kind of coach's mechanic, and he goes, okay, you know, you run 200 miles your way, and then you do 200 miles my way, and we'll see how your tires work out, because tires is a big thing. And what the analogy that I use about this is that you can do it you know, the way that's rambunctious, you're all over the place. So you could actually get it, you know, one developer and say so they can develop everything. And it's going to take you much longer rather if you do this the right way with the right team, with the right individuals, you can get a more efficient costs in place. And then two, uh, secondly, you can uh, do this on budget, on time. Um, rather, when you have someone that is all over the place, which a lot of people do, they say, hey, I can go get someone from... Belarus or someone like that, hire an individual. They, they say they're a full stack developer. Never met, never met. Everybody's a full, a stack, full developer. stack developer. Never met a full stack I, well, developer. I was going to say, ever. I was going to say like, uh, what they mean is I, I code in JavaScript <laughs> and I can do backend and front end using JavaScript. Right. <laughs> but that's where people get into that. So to your question is that, um, yes, people ask that, you know, people that have experience going, no, I want to hire experience. I want to hire people. You've done this before. They usually have a little bit more of a rigorous um, qualification process for us because they go, hey, can I talk to some of your mm-hmm. customers? Do you have anyone similar in our market? Um, what are your methodologies? What's your DevOps process? And we have that in spades and we, we document all that information as well. Because um, going cheap with a development shop um, that says they're really cheap and it usually means they're going to get cheap work. It just really is a correlation. Every once in a while, you might, you know, hit home that there's a, a upcoming company that's out there. But a lot of times it's because they're using cheap labor. Um, the other thing is mm-hmm. understanding the business behind it. Like, what are they trying to achieve yeah. as a business? And mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the things that we try to aspire at Troon is like to really understand the business reason why they're doing it and provide being a trusted advisor about how they're how the customer is building their app and saying, hey, you might want to think about it a different way. There's a better way of doing this, and this is why. Hmm. Uh, rather than just being order takers and just saying we're just going to be there to to code here, and you know we'll just take the orders from you, because sometimes hmm. entrepreneurs, especially we deal with, we they need some guidance. Yeah. So I want to tap in on something that I, that kind of clicked in my mind as you were sharing your experience mm-hmm. working through your corporate corporate world. So there was a time. Before SaaS, 
just prepackaged software, right? Like that <laughs> okay. was predominantly, that's how, what software was. So you've had experience now in the prepackaged software world. Um, you also had a little bit of experience in the SaaS space as well, right? Before you came mm-hmm. to Troon, you were, you did a little bit in SaaS sales as well. Yep. Oh yeah. And, and then Troon comes along and you guys are doing, you're doing custom software. So you've, you've got the gamut, you've got experience working in each of these different, uh, in a sense, kind of different industries. Would you mind sharing with us about like, what are the differences in the sales and maybe even the marketing processes? Mm-hmm. And how are they different when you're talking about uh, prepackaged software, SaaS, and now custom software? Yeah, um, I can, I'll start with like the prepackaged software um, and then the SaaS side of things um, because, you know, again, the pulling on, real experience there. I saw the actual transition at, I'll mention the enterprise resource planning uh, company. I worked for Cayenta in 2003. They were going through the transition of the Unix to the cloud. Um, and they had a Unix emulator mm-hmm. solution and it was packaged software, so to speak, that was client side. That was operating. If you can imagine it was, it, this enterprise resource planning program was sold to cities like the city of San Jose and California was one of our customers. And they had hundreds of users, you know, uh, depreciation of assets like trucks and all that kind of stuff. It's all went into this ERP solution. But the way that people connected with it were through dumb terminals, Unix terminals, and they were trying to have them all talk to one another. And it was just like a mess. Um, that was a transition there to the cloud, which wasn't called the cloud, by the way. That's the, I, you know, I think it's, Sorry, the Microsoft uh, CEO, uh, Balmer, he termed it Mm. the cloud. It used to be application service provider, which was an awful name. (laughs) And then I think he went up on stage and said, hey, we're going to get everything to the cloud. And that was actually, I think, in 2004, 2005 that he came out with it. But people were putting things into the cloud back then. But shrink wrap or client-side software was very well known out there. I mean, uh, Salesforce.com is the ultimate story of this, is that, yeah, I don't know if you know the story behind that, but, um, you know, uh, Larry Ellison uh, gave uh, Mark Benioff his first seed funding. And hmm. Oracle had the number one sales CRM software in the world called Siebel Sales. And it was a client-side software, which I used as a salesperson back in the 90s. You install it on your, soft, on your client computer, but only I could talk to it. My manager mm-hmm. couldn't come in and see what I was doing. I, I could... Mm-hmm. print off a report that you could get this system which would plug in and uh i forget the term of it plug in and pull the information up to one central repository but it was painful and salesforce.com completely changed that with the going to the cloud completely hmm. um i actually had the opportunity when i was in san francisco in 1999 to go into their headquarters at uh one spear street there's only 100 people working there because I was looking. We we're looking to deploy a software for Bystream, the company I was working for, and they said, "Hey, check out these." You know, the CEO at the time uh, back in Ottawa told me, "Hey, check out the, you know, Salesforce.com and, and see if they're actually a real, real company." And went in there. You know, they're a real company, but who knew? <laughs> I didn't know that they were going to be do what they were going to do. But hmm. selling that was what the beginning of SaaS really back then was. Um, you know, salesforce.com coming out with that model. But before that, it was like selling a license. There's mm-hmm. a license. Let's call a thousand bucks for that 
Siebel sales. And then there was a 30% upgrade cost that you had to pay in as well on a, on a year mm -hmm. annual basis where you get all the upgrades uh, added to it. And you could forego the upgrades, but then your systems didn't talk to one another. And it, ultimately, they get you. Um, and the cloud really, you know, having everything go to the cloud and creating software as a service eliminated all that. Um, it's an mm. incredible model, which is actually kind of interesting. It's almost starting to change again. Um, SaaS was maybe a, a period in time where we were selling uh, that way. Um, might be changing things again. So, so that that's the software sales. Um, I've sold, you know, creating uh, client side or package software models, and then also selling software as a service, like the the, the uh, VivaNet company I worked for. The Halo point of sale software was hardware. You actually sold the point of sale software, the actual hardware, sorry. Oh. And hmm. there was also a license for. Um, how many terminals that you had at there. So if you had a bar that had five terminals, you'd have a per terminal fee um, mm. that we'd price it out there. Um, but I can tell you, that's another thing you learn is that when you come out of the gates, pricing is not, there's no perfect science. You got to try and try it a few things. Um, so there was a software as a service model, but then there was also selling hardware along with that. And Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, and then there was a lot of different I'm gonna, sauce. I'm, I'm going to double click on what you had just said, um, mm -hmm. where you said, especially in the software sales side of things, um, that pricing is is more of an art than it is a science. Like, there's you kind of have to you have to play with it a little bit. Um, would you say that 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 has been your experience with selling hardware, selling prepackaged software, SaaS? and custom software, or do you find that, that um, it's very different between those industries? Yeah, I didn't get a chance to talk about the custom software uh, side of things because that's really the difficult one to price out because it's really time and materials. It's it's human power. Like mm -hmm. how many developers are you going to have on the job? Um, mm -hmm. And then you price it out from there. Um, but, uh, you know, software as a service, since there's so much out there, um, it is part art, part science at the beginning when, you, when you're when you launching your product. It becomes science as well because if you've got a lot of competition, you can kind of figure out where your costs are, like what you're going to price things at. Hmm. Um, when it comes to software development, um, custom software development, um, you know, let's say we have a mobile app. Um, you know, a recent example of, uh, you know, we, we have a healthcare company that uh, does sensor technology. And we have a team that's um, denoted to that. And there's, you know, a product manager, project manager, front two front-end developers, a back-end developer, and an IoT developer as well. Um, so it was like six different people that are associated. I think that was six there. Um, mm -hmm. And each one has a different cost structure because they, they have different talents. But we come off with usually a blended rate. Like we just say, hey, there's a blended rate. It's X amount of dollars per month for all the people um, on an hourly rate. And then it could be time and materials, which is basically, hey, this is what our monthly cost is. And we can just keep building into your application. Or we can give you a project-based cost, which is, hey, it's going to take us six months to do this. And we, get, we have a, a very detailed what we call a project charter, where we actually map out every single hour that's associated to each person. 
um, and how long it's mm. going to take to do the backend and min portal to, uh, and then we have the UI UX, sorry, there's a designer involved in there too. Mm. Um, and so we take people through that project charter and say, hey, it's going to cost $200,000, $300,000, you know, $50,000, whatever it is, the project. And then we usually, you know, then there's the payment terms, which is always very uh, interesting because it's, it's usually a negotiation. We want to, A, work with people's budgets and we want to be flexible. But at the same time, we need to receive, you know, the accounts receivables coming in, uh, the invoices. Mm-hmm. And so that that is, uh, you know, so there's no perfect way of doing um, custom software development because it is custom. And so you have to, mm-hmm. you know. Using, again, the house analogy, which is how many rooms do you want? Okay, you want a 10-room house? Mm. Um, okay, how many kitchens? Uh, <laughs> like, hmm. I can price it out. Um, now, there there are actually some pretty good um, app estimators out there um, that hmm. uh, we're in the process of building one as well. So we can just go to the website and price out their app. And it's 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 fairly accurate in how it is. I think people get sticker shock when they do it. And they go, oh, I didn't know it was going to yeah, be that right. much. Because again, going back to people simplify stuff. So, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, as you guys, um, you know, you've had, you said you you just celebrated your, your 10th anniversary working with Troon. Mm -hmm. You've had 10 years of experience um, pricing and working with custom software. Um, Can you talk us through the journey that you took? And I apologize. I'm completely off the notes at this point because I'm just like fascinated with uh, your experience. I Um, I enjoy these conversations. That's that's good. Um, So you want to talk us through the journey of, um, well, let me, let me frame it up this way. It's a common conversation that I have with a lot of my prospects and clients and even guests on the show, which is, you know, figuring out the balance between do we just go a straight time and materials and we're just billing by the hour? Um, or do we try to kind of fix the bid, you know, so we have like a clearly defined project and we're saying this is the exact dollar amount and you might have, you know, scope changes, but scope changes will come with a new SOW and that kind of stuff. Like, can you talk us through your, the evolution of Troon's approach in pricing? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Has it always been just time and materials or have you guys kind of toyed around with a couple of different models for pricing? Yeah, we've toyed around with a lot. Um, Cause you're always, yeah, again, it's a, it's an elusive uh, term, but product market fit <laughs> is something you're always looking at, but there's always new entrants in there. Um, new development mm-hmm. teams out of Ukraine or, yeah, now you got AI assistants and whatnot that uh, are reducing the, the, the structure. But, um, you know, there's three different ways uh, that we kind of look at it. There's the, you know, time and materials is usually where um, where a lot of people land, um, where it's the per hour cost. However, you know, we started with pricing out the whole project. And boy, do you get that wrong sometimes. <laughs> Going back to uh-huh. the comment about... <laughs> how much does the person that you're doing business with that has the idea, do they know how to build an app? Cause they usually throw in a piece of functionality. That they, oh yeah, we need to fit this functionality in there. So that wasn't in there. Like, Oh, you said you needed a calendar. Do you know how complicated calendars are? It's a <laughs> lot of work. And yeah. it's like, and they throw this in. Oh, that's easy. Again, that easy term said, so, no, no, uh, actually calendaring is one of the most sophisticated things you can do in software. Cause you know, you can do this across multiple 
uh, people, uh, calendars, are they going to sync? Um, anyway, that happens quite a bit. Um, so you get bitten from time to time when you quote on things. And that that's where really good project management and product management come in place. So two different things is because hmm. you can start doing work for people and they just throw in a, like an extra feature. Uh, sorry, for customers, they throw in an extra feature and you start doing the work and just do it. And I'd actually do this with a lot of teams say, hey, did you tell them how much this, like, I'm all right if you're doing this to get some goodwill and rapport if it's an easy build. But if it's like a week's worth of work and like, you know, how much would you price that out to be? Oh, $10,000. That's a lot of money for us to give up on that. And that's going to put a push the timelines back. So managing the, Mm -hmm. the, the client relationship and saying, okay, you just client, you just added this feature here. That wasn't in the original discussion here. Oh, I know, but I really need it in there. Saying, okay, well, let's scope this out, and we'll have that as a uh, additional addendum to the contract. And saying, oh, mm-hmm. but like I only have so much budget. Like, this is a constant conversation here. So, well, let's just price it out. Let's mm-hmm. see how it is. And then we use this factor of like, you know, again, built, have they built software before? Because they go like, is there? There's must-haves, and then there's need to have, and then there's just wants. Like, yeah. Um, so we might scope something out, which t- does take some time. And then we say like, hey, it's going to be $10,000 worth of work. We as partners at True may make a strategic decision and say, you know what? Let's do this for them. This is where they, we've learned over time. But maybe we'll take it. You're going to be launching. We like your app a lot. Maybe we'll take some of that $10,000 worth and maybe take some equity in your company. So that's where that's oh. the evolution of our company yeah. that we've actually, when we've <laughs> like, we think the product project has a lot of merit. We actually, hmm. you know, let's take a position because a lot of times they companies try to bring you down on price. And right. usually where we say, you know, Hey, we can always say, Hey, we can't take it on. This is our price is our price for a project. But sometimes hmm. for, for certain projects that have a lot of runway and we feel like we we're basically banking on the entrepreneur, the person behind it. Yeah. Hey, are you going to deploy this? You know, there's a yep. whole other track for that we can talk about. But basically, we can sometimes, very well, every once in a while, um, take you know some equity in a company. But that's only every once in a while. Mm. To, so we reduce the cost, whatever the delta is. Like if we're pricing a project at $100 per hour, we might bring it down to $75 an hour. As you know, and the mm. delta of $25 per hour times how many hour hours or months that's going to be, we take that in equity. Mm. That's an interesting way to work with entrepreneurs and organizations. Mm -hmm. So you actually Mm -hmm. end up having a portfolio of companies to help them out and you stay on consistently with the development team. So, Hmm. so I kind of went around your question there. Project based Hmm. costing is where we stand. We, we started, but it's hard to Hmm. estimate those things. And we definitely had our, um, you know, had our, uh, um, our lunch eaten. Some, from time to time there oh, yeah. time materials yeah. well i mean people just say yeah i was just gonna say time right. materials is the other way and then there's team augmentation i just need two teammates mm. to be added to my existing development team and that's been actually a really good um business model for us where mm. you know we train up the the software engineers they get plugged into an existing software company um we handle all the healthcare benefits all that kind of stuff so they're really like a a full-time employee but we take care of all the headaches from the side of 
you know, employee standpoint. So they just have them plugged in. They have a buy rate for those people and they can eventually buy out the contract of that, that developer. And that's happened several times. So that's an, another way to, to price it out there. That's really, that's really helpful. And I've seen that model play out too in some other clients and specifically when they tend to work with more enterprise level uh, companies where it's like they already have an existing dev team and really what they're looking for is just a little bit of maybe a, a unique skill set, or maybe they're just down a developer or a designer and they just need a little, little extra boost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe this, this question gets at this, which is as you look at your kind of mix of clientele, are you primarily working with more enterprise clients or you kind of work the full gamut all the way from startup to, you know, you know, S and P 500 type of businesses. Yeah. I mean, it's been an evolution over time, starting with a lot of startups because that's where you kind of cut your teeth. Um, and then, um, you know, evolving into small to medium sized businesses. Um, and then learning, trying to get into particular verticals where we can go, deep into so health tech being one of those ones so we mm. you know we started down that path in 2014 where we started getting some penetration into the pharmaceutical companies just building um uh portals for uh, astrazeneca as being one of our the brands that we built now we did that through a a broker let's call it he's a healthcare specialist from the pharmaceutical industry selling his consulting services and he needed a tech you know team to build this out for him so um, but you know, learning and going into that industry, you find out all about the intricacies of pharma and health tech and, you know, all the things about data, uh, privacy and security. Mm-hmm. And so we got into the health tech vertical, um, selling in there, um, um, going into that vertical and then, you know, web three being the other vertical, uh, since we mm-hmm. started building on the blockchain for applications, Back in 2018, hmm. um, I'm sorry, I forgot your question there. I was trying to remember. What no, it was. it's no, no, it's <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. You you did you did answer that, but um, I I think you know one one other thing that I'm like drawing again as I think back on your experience working in these different industries, especially in the sales and, and marketing side, a lot of our audience, uh, I would say, majority of them are more just like they've grown up in in doing the coding, actually being the software developers. Not a lot of them have exposure and experience in the sales marketing and business development side of things. And so I think um, I'd love to hear more also about, you know, what comparison contrast uh, to the even the the qualification process uh, of when you're qualifying a lead for custom software, mm-hmm. like, is it basically you're qualifying them and that qualification looks exactly the same as when you were selling SaaS? Um, or are, are there things that are very different in that approach? Um, yeah, pretty different, pretty different. Because uh, I'll use a term, like basically SaaS is like a widget. You know, I could sell the same mm-hmm. thing over and over in almost the same way features, benefits, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, you work with, uh, again, being a sales person, I've done a lot of sales courses. So you, you figure out how the, what I call the pain chain, start at the CEO down there, finding out how communication works there. And you try to fit your solution in there. You know, how much does it cost if you don't go with this solution, Mr. Mm. Mrs. Customer, that kind of stuff. 
You know, mm -hmm. uh, those kind of questions where you define that. And then again, you're building rapport along the way. Uh, but mm -hmm. you see it's the same features and functionality. You know that over and over again, where you know where where to go in conversations, where most people mm -hmm. have the pain points. Rather with custom development, it is, again, it's a snowflake. It's unique. Everyone's unique. Um, so I got to start hmm. with the story behind it. Um, again, just being with many software companies and also us launching five other companies from Troon. Like we, we've deployed hmm. other companies, created LLCs and sold like a telepharmacist solution in 2016 hmm. to skilled nursing facilities that pharmacy would come through an actual iPad and basically provide uh, uh, medication consulting to elderly patients. Um, oh, wow. And we built a SaaS model for that as an example. Uh, but knowing what it takes to launch a product, um, like I think, I think the failure rate of people actually getting to market is pretty high. It's like 92 yeah. or 93% of all projects just fail. And don't quote me on that one, but I'm pretty sure but it's, it's in the 90s. And so when we launched yeah. the software product, I say this to the team because I've never launched software. But hey, we launched. We got out the market. We have actually customers, paying customers. You know how hard that is? It's hard to do. People, I know the Facebooks of the world, the Googles can make it look so easy. It's not. It's very hard to get to market um, and finish mm -hmm. off that. So um, from that, I always have to evaluate the people that are coming with the idea. Someone wants to build that app. Someone wants that app. I need to understand if they're going to be successful. Have you done this before? Why that's yeah. so important is because I can already tell you how many problems our team, I'm not doing the work. My team's doing the work. I can tell how many mm -hmm. problems they're going to have. I can give you like so many examples of like, Oh yeah. And I even almost tell the customer saying like the cost is what it is. We actually have a buffer on that project charter to say a factor and we say how hard it's going to be. And we give like a 1.5, 1.6 factor on there or 1.1 because we have to have a buffer in there because call it the hassle tax or whatnot, but there's always a buffer in there. And for the people that are more difficult, I don't mind people that are being uh, finicky or picky uh, if they're perfectionists about certain things, but mm -hmm. if they're just unreasonable because they don't know what they don't know mm -hmm. and they say, well, it should be cheaper. It should be take less time. Say, but these things take time. Like, and we gave you this and you mm -hmm. added all these things. You didn't get the, here's the other one. Didn't get the information from you, Mr. and Mrs. Customer. Uh, you mm -hmm. waited two weeks for that. Good project managers mm -hmm. showing, hey, we're delaying the project now two weeks because you didn't get that information too. It's a hard pill to mm -hmm. swallow, but you have to keep the, yep. the client accountable. So you have to evaluate the person that you're going to do business with because it is a relationship. So you're figuring out what their background is. Have you done it before? No? Well, okay. I wouldn't say a red flag, but I'm just saying, okay, let's dig deeper. The other one, mm -hmm. are you from that industry of the app that you're you're building? If you've Ooh, never come from that industry, that's a good I go, one. you're going to have a tough time. You know, I can tell you how many yeah. times when I've talked to people, when I ask that question, hey, have you done this from the, you know, are you from the industry? Have you done this for? Oh, no, but I think this is a really good idea. Said, what tells you that's a good idea? And again, I go through the five whys. Why? Why is this a good idea? You know, well, it's a good idea because of this and saying, so why do you think mm -hmm. it'll, you know, work? And usually I can find out through that. Now, once I've mm -hmm. gone through those questions and they're rock solid, so I've done my research. I know what the competition is doing. Here's where the market is. And I'm a, 
go-getter that I, you know, I've done this before in other companies where I've actually built apps where from scratch, that I call is a bit of a, um, you know, a mythical creature. You don't see that very often. Yeah. Yeah. Most people you know should the, come from I'm, the industry to solve that that problem. Yeah. What I'm taking away, Jeff, from what you're saying is, you know, when it comes to qualification in custom software, like you said, SaaS, you're selling a widget. So the features, the benefits, it's pretty well defined. You've got a lot of use cases in the past. And so you, you know how to navigate. But what I'm hearing you say is for custom software, um, it is very much you're vetting the individual. You're you're vetting the person on the other end because, like you said, it's a very much a relationship business. And you know, I, I've talked about this probably in not the same words, but I've talked about this as I've posted on LinkedIn too. Is like, you know, you actually want to be vetting people out, right? You you don't want to say you don't want every single prospect in your pipeline to say yes because either that means you're pricing too low. Or it means you're going to have a nightmare on your hands when you actually go to execute on some of these projects. And so I think it was actually really helpful to hear you say that um, when you think about I'll the, give you the a types good analogy of people you want to work with. Yeah. There's a sales saying for that. I'm trying to get to no fast. Not the yes, mm. but the no. I mean, I'm qualifying out because, mm -hmm. again, sales is very much a numbers game. So if you've got a lot of leads coming, mm -hmm. you need to qualify them because you can get stuck on someone. So I'm just saying to know. Being a, I'm, and sometimes when you get to know, it's remarkable what happens when you say, "I don't know if we're a right fit for you, the person." And they go, "Whoa, whoa, wait! Well, I really want you guys." And saying, "Well, I don't know because you just said this, this, and this, and your budget was this, and you know, hey, we were like this." And it's funny how people will fight for that, but I still may say, like, "I don't think we're a fit for you because, you know, you need to build out your lean startup canvas, like, because you haven't done that, you haven't thought about that." Um, mm -hmm that's that's the balance in any software custom software development company listening to this or whatever i've been in that bottle like, oh we're going to take them on we don't think they're going to be successful but we're going to take them on we'll take their money and a lot of times you're not doing them favors <laughs> you're not no and you're just creating yeah. problems for your company so you got to right. really really evaluate that process sorry i interrupted you but i just do no you're you're spot on. You 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 took the words out of my mouth. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that, and I love hearing those those examples or like that that example because I think you're you're exactly right. Like if we are if we're taking on everybody because we feel stressed because we don't have enough revenue, um, yeah, we're we're just gonna gum up the works. I I talk about like the best way to improve your profitability is to really focus in on your gross margins. Well, your gross margins are always going to be garbage if you have garbage projects coming in and like you're talking about a big indicator on whether or not a project's going to be successful is like, who are the people you are going to be working with in this relationship, relationship business. So, you know, Jeff, I want to talk about, um, Troon's experience and expertise in the web three space. You know, sure. I think you had said back in, uh, was it 2018? You guys did your very first web three, uh, yeah. application. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's, You've, you've had some time, you've had a, mm -hmm. quite a few years, um, and you've built some pretty incredible solutions. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about um, uh, specifically the fact that SBC has recently invested in you? I know that was really, really big news. So you mm -hmm. want to tell us a little bit about like, why, why do they partner with you? What's that all about? Sure, sure. I mean, I could start with just, you know, us getting into the Web3 market to begin with 
um, just because it's, you know, we were doing quite well in the health tech marketplace and we had a lot of good clients that were in this small to medium sized business. So I think that will definitely uh, attribute the, you know, direction to Web3 to Paul Dubé um, because, you know, at the time in 2018, if you recall, Bitcoin was starting to go up and um, ICOs, um, uh, initial coin offerings were a big thing. And people were really raising capital out of the thin air. It was an interesting time. There was also a lot of scammers out there too, unfortunately. That's the evolution of early stage um, technology. There's usually always scammers out there. Um, but that got us into this world of finding out like, okay, what is going on in the blockchain world? Ethereum was only, I think, two years old at that time. They launched it at the beginning of 2016. So, you know, building the world's computer, building software on top of a decentralized um, protocol was, you know, absolutely revolutionary game, game changer um, and how they were doing it. But then there was this whole new world. So we, we started exploring into this and knowing that blockchain could be applied to a lot of things, in particular, um, you know, um, cutting out the middleman or cutting out manual processes that really are just quite, quite big headaches. And so we created a company called Liquidus um, and we, um, for jurisdiction, we were down in Bahamas. So we had a headquarters down there. Because there was banks, we had a... a connection into a lot of the banks down there and they they had a manual process to onboard their customers you actually had to go into the banks fill out all these documents put your signature down and um, we were automating that process to put that in you know not only in the cloud but also on a digital ledger ledger so hmm. therefore someone had to identify themselves first of all with a digital identity we were, we created a pseudo anonymous digital identity solution that connected to the bank's interface there and then you could sign the documents virtually so you could be anywhere in the world and sign up for a bank account through that so we we built that digital onboarding solution as well as there was a compliance component to it so there was a compliance officer that would come in and be able to verify everything only go through that is because there was a very complex solution. Uh, we built on a couple of different blockchains um, for that, and that was a that was our first, you know, foray into the the blockchain Web3 side of things. And unfortunately, COVID nineteen happened. Funding dr um, dried up. We were three months away from launching at one of the bigger banks, Royal Fidelity, down in Bahamas, and uh, it was unfortunate, but uh, learned a lot. Uh, from that, from there, we were also at Troon just selling our Web3 development services. And at that time, a lot of people were coming to us and saying, hey, I need a, um, you know, 2021. People were wanting a lot of private NFT storefronts built. And mm. OpenSea was just a thing coming on there where you could actually uh, buy and sell your, um, your NFT collections. Um, however, no, no one had a way of actually, you know, selling this privately unless you had a custom application of selling your own storefront on off of your own brand. And that's what we built. And we built many of uh, custom storefronts um, uh, to sell their NFTs from. And so we, that's, we had a regular sales channel going through that. 
the Web3 world is very communal. So a lot of people find out about you. And so they say, hey, you should talk to, to Troon. Uh, there weren't a lot of Web3 development firms out there. Um, mm -hmm. And it's complex. There's so many different protocols that you could build upon. Ethereum was just one. Uh, we started off with Hyperledger. I won't go into all the different ones out there. Um, so with that experience, and then, you know, we did, we built a lot of um, bridges for companies as well. So bridges between one protocol and another, that's also where a lot of hack, hacking happens is at the, at the bridge, mm -hmm. uh, bridge side of things. You know, one of oh, our interesting. clients is CryptoSlam. Now CryptoSlam, hmm. Randy Wesinger, who's a great mathematician, great uh, visionary. He does basically the coin market cap or the aggregator of all NFT sales out there. So you can go up to CryptoSlam.com uh, and get the latest sales on every single NFT. He's, we're now up to 22 blockchains that he's pulling information from. Why I mention wow. that is that we have two individuals that are working there from Troon that are just working as, their, as team augmentation for him. That are just building mm -hmm. these bridges out um, out there. So that's just probably 10% of all the Web3 projects there. But, you know, fast forward to eight months ago, um, Lewis Bateman from Spirit Blockchain Capital met Paul Dubé at uh, Consensus down in Austin. Um, and they started chatting. And Lewis Bateman was looking for a Web3 development company. So Spirit Blockchain Capital is a public company um, uh, under uh, the, the, the stock is sold under the Vancouver Stock Exchange. And so it is regulated by the OSE itself in, up in Canada, but uh, it's a very well known regulated entity. So, but Spirit Blockchain is a investment company. So they invest in distressed Web3 properties. So distressed being that, you know, Web3 has gone through its downtime, but there's some really good assets out there. So what he's done, is he's done investments into them and he's got a board position. I say him, Lewis, because he's on the board of all these like four different investments in there. Hmm. The other side of the business, it's an asset management company where uh, they have licenses to be able to create um, um, actual assets. So like ETFs. Um, Big thing about Bitcoin ETFs, but market money funds is one of the first things that's going to be um, created um, uh, by SBC. And it's an asset management company out of Switzerland. So uh, part of the public wow. company they have is the private uh, private company, Spirit uh, Capital, Spirit Blockchain Capital AG in Switzerland. And then there's a Dubai entity as well where there's licenses there. So the idea is that basically Spirit Blockchain capital will have all these assets and be able to trade uh, their assets on three different markets um, across all these different time zones. Um, and then lastly, the part is why they're looking for, for Troon is because they need a Web3 company to come in and build these solutions, uh, help build solutions for, for these portfolio companies. So 10% of Troon has been acquired in a slow acquisition over three years. We may be acquired faster over the next year or so like that, but right now it's only 10%. Uh, it's a share swap. So um, basically we have that, but we're really a part of uh, Spirit Blockchain Capital. Um, hmm. And it's it's been wonderful. Like the, the flexibility I have as a, as a salesperson where it's like someone, there's a company out of New York called Lantern, Lantern Finance. They do ETH staking. 
and they've got 15 license payment license across 15 different states. And they go, God, we can't get enough licenses. He goes, they need to, they need Troon to do work because they want to go from a custody provider called BitGo to Fireblocks. And we have the ability mm-hmm. to do that for them. He had, they have a development team, but they don't, they're focused on the core product. They need a hire. Right. A company to come in there and do the migration for them. So that's what we're going to come in mm. there. But then I flip over to, oh, you need licenses. Oh, really? Well, Spirit Blockchain Capital might be able to help you with that. And so I'm going to get these oh, people on the phone with that. So we can sell more services and help out Spirit mm. Blockchain Capital. They maybe they could utilize these these payment licenses um, as a secondary option for them, so they could leverage these licenses. So um, it, there's a lot that you can unpack there. Um, last I'll mention there, they wanted to acquire Troon is because they want to create a venture studio. They, Spirit Blockchain Capital, a venture studio mm. to create their own products. Troon's already got some of those products that we have on the bench that we're trying to get out to market. Now we can maybe put them into mm-hmm. the venture studio there. And they need a development company to deploy these 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 new products. That's there. on it. Yeah. That's super cool. I know uh, on that last point, I know it's actually something that I'm seeing... I don't know that it's increasingly so, but I've I've come across a number more of them. But um, the venture studio concept, I think this is one of the unspoken strengths of the software development agency model, which is that you have, in a lot of ways, you're, you're kind of the horsepower behind, yeah, the startup world. And, um, you know, one, one guy actually, um, the, the guest just prior to, um, this episode is going to be airing the one that we uh, record and then released just prior to this, Mm -hmm. um, his, uh, dev agency started also in kind of a, um, a venture studio ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it's fun to hear that. It's fun to hear that, you know, there's, there are strategic reasons not only to start a software development agency, but also to invest in them. And like you gave with Spirit Block and Chain Capital is like, you're already having conversations. It's a very like complimentary service offering that you're providing and what Spirit Blockchain Capital has to offer. Um, so lots of, uh, as we'd call synergy there in yep. that relationship. It's that's it's it, kind of the missing piece that, it, uh, again, we've run the gambit, like, at Troon, we have gone out and tried to raise capital for our products. We've been successful in sometimes, uh, but sometimes it's a hard way to do things. And so you talk with a lot of venture capital or angel investors. The missing piece in a lot of these, like even these big funds, they don't have a technical expertise of like what they're investing in. That's they right. might hire a third party to do this and they hire them to do that and they give them their best interest there. Again, why? I give Lewis Bateman a lot of credit. Like he's going to know I, we need to own the software development process, the web three development process. That's where like, you, you kind of own the mechanics, the mechanics that can build anything. And so uh, it's really helpful to do that. I, I mean, I'll just give you the overall big vision is that what SBC is trying to do is build the rails to tokenization of real world assets. Could be bonds, the money market funds as well, real estate, mm-hmm. you name it. All these things are being tokenized right now. And every single bank and financial organization is getting in this. JP Morgan already has mm-hmm. something in place where they they did something with BlackRock where they they um, sent a $100 million uh, fund um, bond 
issuance to Barclays off of their um, the JP Morgan, forget the name of it, but it's a blockchain. It's a private blockchain. Why this is such a big deal is because it, it, it fulfilled in seconds. Yeah. You usually take about two days to do that, to actually fulfill on any of these orders. And so, yeah, that's the whole idea of the efficiency. It's, it's taking out all these yep. middle processes, human processes, yeah. and they're doing this. And every bank is in the game. They, they're all doing something behind the scenes, but wow. they're like tankers. They're like tankers in the sea. They will move like this slowly. Oh, like yeah. Speedboat. We're like, yep. we're like a speed, yep. but we can go really fast. So we can build all this infrastructure and saying, Hey, by the way, two years time, yep. we have all the infrastructure yeah. here. Bank, why don't you come buy this process? Um, because that's, you know, it's, it's worth a lot and they're all getting well, into this. And it's, it's the reason why I'm like, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. is like, I really think the software development agencies are the unsung heroes of the tech industry because you've got circumstances like this where it's like, you know, a new technology blockchain or newer technology like blockchain and banks are just going to take so long to finally adopt that new technology. But who are going to be the catalysts that are going to ultimately bring about that transformation? It's not going to be the massive organizations. And I'd argue in this current funding ecosystem, it's not even going to be the startups. It's going to be the, like you said, the, the mechanics, the engineers, the people who are actually learning this new, um, you know, whether it's the, the um, I'm blanking on the name, the protocols that you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, but who are actually developing uh, and who have the expertise in the Web3 space or with AI, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, that's why I'm just such a big fan of the software development agency world. Um, well, I know we're, we're coming up on time here, but I want to get in yeah. one last can of worms if we can open mm -hmm. one of those up for a minute. Um, so for a brief stint, I remember back before AI was a big thing, everybody mm -hmm. was talking about blockchain. It was the fancy buzzword on everybody's mind, but now it's AI. Like everybody's talking about AI. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you see AI and blockchain interplaying? Um, and then also like, have you had a chance to work with any um, interesting things where you're leveraging both Web3 frameworks and AI to deliver solutions for your clients? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yes, we have done um, many projects with uh, using machine learning um, and also AI in the past. Um, you know, what, what I would say, like, what I try to follow a lot of times is like where the tea leaves are, uh, so to speak, where they're pointing towards, if that's uh, mixing metaphors right now. But um, basically, if you really want to look at this is that um, Bitcoin or Bitcoin, but blockchain itself has gone through its ups and then its downs and ups like that. And you keep on hearing these things coming. And this is just a natural uh, progression of any new technology. Uh, people definitely get ahead of themselves. Oh, NFTs are great. You know, they're worth uh, JPEGs worth $500,000. That stuff will go away. The technology behind it, the NFT technology is revolutionary. You just won't know what it is because you don't know you're going to be using something in the, in the future and it's going to just do something and go, hey, that's really cool. I can do that. That's going to be NFT technology behind there. What I mean by that is it's just that like NFTs are extremely flexible. It's not a JPEG. It can be any any stored asset. It could be a real estate asset because it, it's mm -hmm. a unique asset that you need to show provenance of of who owns it. Where's the, you know, where's the deed right now? You know, Tony probably own your house. Where's your deed right now? Mm-hmm. 
somewhere. I have no like, idea. Somewhere. Right? It should <laughs> reside actually on your in your digital wallet hmm. where you can bring it up and say, here it is. But you'd have to identify yourself first through the digital identity. Hmm. Now that's the future where you're gonna be able to have all your documentation, medical records. Medical records are hmm. an NFT, right? Because they're unique. Hmm. You should own your medical records for one thing. Now, eventually, the healthcare market will get on that. I am. We're not playing in that space. It's going to take too long for, for the medical uh, uh, community to get their heads wrapped around this. Um, and it, hmm. by that time, we'll be moving on to a, a lot of other things. Um, but, hmm. you know, blockchain is coming back in, um, in, a, in a fairly big way. As I mentioned, there's the spot Bitcoin ETF that likely will be approved tomorrow. We don't know. Um, <laughs> TBD. <laughs> that will float a lot of boats there. Now, AI was the big mm. thing that came through last year. Fastest growth of any 100 million users. Incredible. Uh, use it every day. Um, efficiency tool. Uh, people should embrace it because it's not, it's not going to be squashed. It can't be squashed. And so, mm. um, you know, I think it's incredible. There is a great uh, marriage between, uh, between crypto blockchain and ai now i'll give you two examples of that one yeah. is that you know you may or may not have heard of autonomous agents but they are being built for by companies uh, or individuals i could build an autonomous agent today to basically i gotta go to panama early next week and i could have built my own autonomous agent to say go find me the best flights um with the uh, hotels at this location um, and also find me a dinner um, under 20 bucks. And right now it will find it for me. It could, you can write that and it will go do that for you. It sounds like a cert, like, you know, Expedia, but this is actually built around your preferences. Right. You can upload all your rewards into that. So you can basically get your rewards and then you can go find that. Now there's going to be an autonomous agent on the other side of that. Who's going to fulfill that? So there's going to be two AIs talking to one another to fulfill that. Guess what currency they're going to use to fulfill the pay for that 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 uh, package? It's not going to be fiat currency. Not US dollars. It's going not to be US crypto. dollars. It's going to be crypto because uh -huh. I'm going to have a certain amount of crypto. Huh. So this is not my idea. This is Yatsui and other people. Yatsui is the CEO and founder of Animoca Brands. Um, hmm. Animoca is one of the biggest investors in Web3. They hmm. they're the, the um, they've invested in um, so many different projects out there. He's he he was around 1990, um, you know, installing SAP back in the day. This guy is super smart. But this is a, that's one of the uses of crypto. The other one is, and you're going to see it real time. Is we're going to have a hard time figuring out is that really Joe Biden up there on stage? Is that really Trump? Deep fakes. Mm. How are you going to validate what you're seeing is truly what you're seeing there? Don't you need to figure out That's the provenance good. behind mm -hmm. that? And hmm. so when someone's making a video, they should actually be putting that on the blockchain or a picture and saying, hey, this is where it came from. Okay. And mm. if someone splices that up or an AI generates that, you can actually go go to the blockchain and say, hey, there's no record of this. So, you know, this is likely a deep fake. Um, so... I'm, I'm simplifying that, but that is going to be one of the areas where the blockchain can really help out AI. But that's actually a really good point. And we won't think about, I mean, like to your point, like when NFTs first come out or when the blockchain is first introduced, 
you know, there's the people who are just excited because it's a new technology, but yeah, real reality is, is like, we haven't like fully understood the implications of like how this technology could be used. You make a really great point and example, which is when AI can create essentially a fake you or a fake whoever blockchain, can be a grounding technology, a, a technology that can improve and bolster trust, which I hadn't even thought about until you just said that. So that's actually, it's really interesting. That's it. I mean, that that is probably one of the cornerstones of the blockchain is providence and hmm. the origin. Um, I won't go into a lot of the different ways that you can get. You have to connect also a digital identity to that because you want to also know who the person hmm. that created that. Right. And so that can be faked on that side of things. But hmm. there are ways to do that. One of the hardest things that is going to be cracked likely in the next five years is a digital identity that is on the blockchain that you own, not the government. We mm. do not want the government to necessarily do that stuff because they're going to get it wrong and they're going to use it for other purposes. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but that's mm -hmm. known to do that. So therefore a digital mm -hmm. identity, this is what world, uh, world coin tried to do. Sam Altman, who was the um, founder and CEO of uh, OpenAI, but he also had founded mm -hmm. WorldCoin, which is a, digital identity hmm. solution maybe maybe it might uh be that one but that is many different things and then there's ai just working with generating things for uh blockchain so for example um you know we work with a company called um club create and it's a place where you can go to if you have a club or you're a band a music band for example you can create your own merch from this and it's got a customization mm -hmm. On there so you can say uh, i'm a fan of this band i can go up and, and customize my own merch itself hmm. and there's a way of you putting this together and, and you create something that is custom and then that drop ships that actual custom merch to my front door and hmm. and so we're we're going to be implementing the web3 component to it so there'll be a physical component fidgetal so it'll be a physical <laughs> component and then there's going to be a a virtual component. So you're going to actually have a mm -hmm. NFT that's established of that, let's say it's a hoodie or something like that, that you could eventually mm -hmm. wear in your uh, Fortnite game where eventually that is going to go. Um, the video games are all going to get on board where you're going to be able to, you know, I don't know if again, Tony, you have kids, but you watch kids in Fortnite. You know, one of the things for birthday parties is Fortnite bucks, you know, uh, and oh, they, yeah. they love using the money to go purchase things in the game. But you can't take those mm -hmm. game those things out of the game and take mm -hmm. them into Halo as an example. That's where mm -hmm. a lot of it is going. But you need to show provenance. You need to show that you own it. You have to do all these different things. Going. Mm -hmm. That sword might be worth a lot because it might be owned by a famous person that you want to buy it from. Again, there's, mm -hmm. there's a whole world in there. I don't talk a lot about the metaverse and video games because I like the more real world uh, uses of it, but that's just one example. Oh, I love that. Oh my goodness. Well, one thing we knew Jeff coming into this interview was that we were for sure going to have a follow-up interview with, with one of your partners. And then hopefully we can have the both of you on to talk a little bit more web three blockchain, kind of the future of this industry. Cause I know you've got a lot more thoughts that you didn't even get a chance to share today. Um, but before we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners um, some words of wisdom, right? So specifically what I want you to do is I want you to Im imagine that software developer who's in corporate America mm -hmm. uh, or maybe corporate Canada um, mm -hmm. 
and or maybe they're they are the, themselves a newer software dev agency maybe within the last year they've launched their software dev agency um what would be some words of wisdom that you would want to convey to either of those or both of those audiences yeah um i would say a couple things um one thing just again gray-haired experience diversify your <laughs> customers try do not try not to have just two customers um, try to have mm. several customers and spread it out because you never know when that big client might walk out the door or they might run out of money. Um, definitely mm. words of wisdom. When you have that client, don't stop prospecting for other clients. That's another thing that a lot of mm. uh, agencies forget. It's like, oh, I've, I got money coming in. Then all of a sudden that client goes away. I've got a, That's kind of simple stuff um, that you know you should do. Uh, the other thing is uh, try to um, hone yourself in a particular vertical or discipline, um, whether it be mm. Microsoft services um, uh, um, expertise and specialties. Um, we don't have that as an example. Like we're not like a Salesforce.com or Microsoft Dynamics uh, uh, shop. But um, if you do that, you can go into those verticals and promote yourself in there as a credible um, solution provider for that. So that's a, that's another one. Um, one of the other ones that's really tough to define. We, we struggle with this, but try to know your numbers, really try to know your numbers, know where your money, where your hours are being put in, hmm. know your margins. Um, cause that will help with your pricing and give you confidence. in when you are giving a quote saying, no, actually this is the cost hmm. is what it is. Uh, those are really simple things. It's just, it's actually hmm. quite hard to do. Um, getting developers yeah. to fill out a timesheet virtually um, is not an easy thing to do. And, um, yeah. you know, and then the client tends to question that stuff sometimes. Hey, why did it take so long for that? But that's another right. story. Um, those are a few things that come to mind on that, um, mm. you know, just for success on that. And if you do mm. want to launch your own products, definitely do your research and take the product proper programs if you you know just because you're a software developer and agency you may not have launched products before that's a whole different world there's support and all the other things that go along with it uh it may seem, mm -hmm. seem simple on the outside but you're really becoming a company an entity um and yes. uh learn the the learn start lean startup uh methodologies it's really, really will uh, help you avoid a lot of the pitfalls i love it wow those, uh, you gave us, uh, what was that? Four or five different words of wisdom. I guess so. Hey, that was, <laughs> that was great. That was fantastic. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. I appreciate that. Now, again, adventure, I guess people have listened to this episode and at least one person will think to themselves, man, I have more questions. I want to ask Jeff, or I want to follow along with what, what Jeff's mm -hmm. got going on. Where, where would be some good places for people to follow you, to follow up with you? Sure. Um, where can people go? Sure. Two, two easy spots are on LinkedIn. Um, my, if you can see my name there, it's Jeff, J-E-F-F, which is simple. But if you type in um, Naismith, which is N is Nancy E-A-S-M-I-T-H, I'm the only one on LinkedIn out there, so I should come up there. Um, the other place is on uh, on Twitter or X. Um, I'm, I'm Jeff Naismith 2 at, uh, um, at Jeff Naismith 2, yeah, the number 2. Um, so you can find me there or at Troon. Um, uh, my email is j, uh, jeff at 
trunetechnologies.com. That's T-R-O-O-N technologies.com. Love it. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your words of wisdom, for your experience and sharing with our audience. Um, and I'm super excited to see everything you guys got going on with SBC and Troon. And I have a feeling like you guys are going to be on the cutting edge of some really cool things in the Web3 space. Thanks. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate the questions. It was a lot of fun. And thank you to our listeners. If you found value out of our podcast today, please share it with your friends and subscribe for future episodes. Also, don't forget to leave us a review because it helps other people find us and hear inspiring stories like the one we heard today. If you are the founder of a software development agency, or you know somebody who is, and you'd like to share something exciting that you're up to with our audience, drop me a line at tony at equip.com. That's A-C-C-Q-U-I-P dot com. <laughs>